this week, uh, I came across a quote from John Owen, an English pastor and theologian in the 17th century, who said this, We are never nearer Christ than when we find ourselves lost in a holy amazement at his unspeakable love. To be near God, to know God in a close and intimate and real way happens when we are overwhelmed by God's greatness and his love. Jeff just said this, if you were with us at the very beginning of the service this morning, we've just come out of a series where we've been talking about this very thing, what we've called the way of wonder, this way of life that's been opened up to us through the death and resurrection of Jesus, a life that is characterized by wonder and awe and gratitude and joy and peace and how that's meant to change, obviously, the way that we relate to God, but the way that we relate to ourselves, the way that we relate to one another, the way that we relate to creation. And this summer, as we often do, we're going to be in the Psalms. And specifically, we want to begin by considering Psalms that help us to look at God and to contemplate God and to think about God, because that is the fuel of wonder. That's how we get lost in holy amazement at the beauty of our God. And so Psalm 113 is kind of the perfect way to start because this is a psalm that calls us to praise and enjoy God. You see that in the very beginning of the psalm and how it ends as well. This psalm tells us what we need to praise God as well as why we should praise God. And so let's think about this psalm this morning, and I want us to think about those two questions. What do we need to praise God, and why should we praise God? What do we need? Uh, let me begin by asking a question. How do you feel, like, what's going on inside of you when I, or Jeff, uh, or when Jennifer was reading this, and you, you hear the call to praise God? Maybe for you, there is this, like, immediate, like, you just resonate with that idea, and, and your whole being just kind of, like, comes alive like a light bulb, and you feel wonder and awe and joy, and if that's true, that's great. But I would imagine that there are some of us here, perhaps many of us, that at least at times in our lives, we hear that call to praise, and we don't really feel much. It, it doesn't really resonate. Do you ever hear the words, praise God? And what kind of comes to mind first is maybe like a cheesy worship leader trying to just get everybody like really excited, or someone who's trying to be very spiritual. Does it feel distant? Does it feel detached from normal life? If that is your experience, if it was your experience this morning, or if you know at times that has happened to you, what are we supposed to do if we actually want to really resonate with this idea of praising God? What do we need to touch, for it to touch ground in our lives? And I say the first thing is to recognize that praise is not a foreign activity. It's not you know, something that religious people do only, or a certain group of people that are into this thing called praise do. If you're new to Christianity, or if you're really in a place where you're saying, I really want to take my faith seriously, or you're just here and you're asking questions, 
What does it mean to know God? It's important to realize that what this psalm is calling us to do is not exercise some muscle that you've never exercised before. It's not a foreign activity. It's a human thing. To praise is to express approval or adoration of a person or a thing. And this is stuff that we obviously do all the time. I mean, I'll give you a short list, but you could think of tons of things we praise. We express praise toward people. So maybe toward like a friend or toward a child, or if you're married, toward your spouse. Hopefully you do that sometimes. Um, we praise food, restaurants, we praise sports, music, the best place to go for vacation. We praise all sorts of things. But when we praise something, it's always about enjoying something in particular. So, for example, if you're telling someone about the best burger in Chicago, you talk about the details of the burger. You talk about the bun. Was it toasted? Was it a pretzel bun? You talk about the meat. Like, what were, were there special ingredients in the meat? What kind of cheese did they use? Were there toppings? Was it grilled onions? Where were the grilled onions? Were they under the cheese? Right? It's, it's in the details. You don't praise in the abstract, an abstract burger. It's in the concrete details of the burger. When you praise your favorite band or you're thinking about your favorite song, it's, it's the way the voices or the instruments kind of come together at that point in the song or, or it just goes into the chorus and, and your heart is just bursting to sing along with it in the car. If you're praising sports, you're probably watching something in slow motion, right? You're watching the details of the athlete as he or she it like heads the ball into the net or, or the touchdown pass is thrown or the, or the hole in one happens. If we're gonna praise God, in other words, we have to know things about God. God has to reveal himself to us. And it's easy to kind of miss this, but in the first few verses of the psalm, that's exactly what we have if you look at verses one through three. Look at the text and notice the repetition of name. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. In the Bible, a person's name is often more significant than just what we call this person to distinguish them from that person. Like, I'm Jeff, and, or I'm Nick, I'm not Jeff. I'm Nick and Jeff's over there. I don't know my own name. Uh, to praise or bless God's name is to think about his character. Think about particular great and glorious things about who God is, what makes God amazing and awesome, and to observe them, to think about them, to mold them over until we respond with, with joy and adoration and love. You'll notice, too, in the psalm, uh, the repetition of LORD in all capital letters. When your English Bible has that, that is God's personal name, Yahweh, the name that God revealed to Moses and the people of Israel, the name associated with del God delivering his people, the Israelites, out of slavery from Egypt in the Exodus event. It's the name associated with God's covenant, 
that God is a God who chooses to freely attach himself and bind himself to a people promising to be their God and be faithful to them. So if the first three verses of this psalm were a Wikipedia article, at least the words name and Lord would be hyperlinked texts that if you clicked on, it would go to a page and it would just be chocked full of information about who this God is, what this God has done, what this God is like. And this is what you and I need to praise God, to hear that call to praise God and have it resonate deeply in our hearts with meaning and significance. Because this is the God who has made himself known, who has acted in history, who has revealed himself and demonstrated himself to be faithful. This is the God, verse 2, who is worthy of praise all the time, from this time forth and forevermore. The God, verse 3, who is deserving of praise in all places, every place that the sun touches the earth, from the rising of the sun all the way to its setting. But second, let's think about why ought we to praise God? Why should we praise God? This psalm gives us two specific reasons to praise God. Because he is infinitely great and mercifully near. And we're going to see that these two reasons are related to each other. These two reasons for praise, and they're actually interdependent. But let's think about the first. We ought to praise God because of his infinite greatness. We ought to praise God because his greatness is beyond our ability to even fully comprehend. He is incomprehensible to us. If you look at verses 4 through 6, notice the emphasis on God's greatness. How he is high and exalted and above all. The Lord is high above all nations, and his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high? In Isaiah chapter 40, it says that in comparison to God, the nations are like a drop in a bucket. Compared to God's greatness and his glory and his weightiness, seemingly enormous, powerful, and mighty nations. Like, like we could think of the world power and influence of nations like Russia or China or the U.S. And all the nations, they are like nothing in comparison to God. Isaiah says they are about as weighty as dust on the scales. Verse 6 speaks of God, who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth. The, the Hebrew word here in the first half of the verse describing God as the one who, who looks far down is a word that means to, to come low or to humble, to make humble. It's a word that's often used in contrast to those who are prideful and arrogant, who make themselves high. It's a picture of one who is brought down low to the ground. I'm going to get down low, just so, right? So this is the picture. God has to get down low to look at the heavens. 
That's, that's the picture that the psalmist wants you to imagine. He has to get down low to look at the heavens. But this spatial metaphor, it's not to communicate that God's really spatially far away, like he, his home is in, I don't know, whatever four galaxies away from us is, that that's where he lives. And so he has to come really far to get to us. But it's using a spatial metaphor to help us to imagine the difference in God's being and his existence from our being and our existence. God is the creator and we are creatures. And the difference between God's existence and his being and our existence and our being is so great. So consider for a moment just different kinds of life. So there's obviously like human life and there's animal life and there's plant life. And the experience of those different kinds of life is quite different. We have a wonderful, very large golden retriever dog. Her name is Scout. Uh, Scout knows our kids. She recognizes them. She knows their voices. She loves Liam and Abby. But Scout's knowledge of my kids and my knowledge of my kids is quite different. Like, I know lots of things about my kids. Like, like I can have a deep conversation with my kids. I know their comings and their goings. I know their friends. I know so many details and complexities about them. I know when they make a certain facial gesture that they might, I can usually tell they're sad, they're angry, they're frustrated, they're excited, they're scared. And I often know pretty accurately why they are those things. I have knowledge of my kids. My dog has knowledge of my kids. What is God's knowledge of my kids like? As different as Scout's knowledge and my knowledge is, the knowledge of the Creator, of my children, is far, far greater. This is what uh, the 17th century Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter 7 is kind of getting at. I'm going to paraphrase this little section where they write, the distance between God and the creature is so great that even though we are responsible to obey God as our creator, yet we could never experience any enjoyment of God or have true fellowship with God unless God chooses to come down and make himself known and draw near to us and set the grounds of that relationship. We ought to praise God for his infinite greatness. But the second reason that we should praise God according to Psalm 113 is because he is also mercifully near. When God comes down, when he makes himself low, to whom does he draw near? Verses 7 through 9. The poor, the needy, the barren woman experiencing shame. And what happens when the exalted one comes low? The one who is high comes low in mercy, and he lifts the needy from the ash heap. The one who 
It's seated on high, comes low, and he makes the poor and needy to be seated with princes. And you remember how I said these two reasons to praise God are, are connected and interdependent. Let me show you what I mean. When verse 5 asks the question, who is like the Lord our God, we're talking about God's infinite greatness. And yet the very first time that that question is asked in Scripture is in Exodus chapter 15, verse 11. It's in the Song of Moses. When Moses and the people of Israel are praising God for what he has just done by drawing mercifully near to them a poor and oppressed people to deliver them from their enemies at the Red Sea and to save them. David also asks the question, who is like the Lord our God in Psalm 35? And there he's asking the infinite great God in that Psalm to come and contend with the enemies that are trying to kill him. The very fact in one sense that I could even be up here this morning and talking about any of this, talking about the Lord's greatness and what we can know about him necessitates that God has actually come down to reveal himself and make himself known. Think about it. If God were infinitely great, but not mercifully near, we could not know him, we could not have communion with him, we could not relate to him as our father who cares for us. If he were infinitely great but not mercifully near, his greatness could not come in and help us and change anything. And yet, if he were just near, but not great, not the sovereign Lord, not the one who transcends this world, who stands outside of it, then he cannot really come in and intervene from the outside. This is the God who is worthy of praise. The God who is infinitely great, but also mercifully near. That God is at work in the big things of the world. We see this, the Exodus as an example. But also verse 9, which is almost a quote from 1 Samuel chapter 2 in the story of Hannah, where God answers the prayer of Hannah, a woman stuck in shame and misery of not being able to have a child. And God gives this barren woman a home and makes her the joyous mother of children. It is this greatness and mercy together that lead us to praise God. This, uh, this past week, I came across a story um, about WWE professional wrestler John Cena. Uh, there was a Ukrainian mother and her child, her children actually, were fleeing from Ukraine because of the war. The mother's name is Liana. She had to convince her 19-year-old son uh, who has Down syndrome and is nonverbal to leave their home. But that was just incredibly agitating to him and he didn't understand it and he didn't want to leave. And so his mother said, we have to leave because we're traveling to see John Cena. And so they left. And then there were news reports about it. And John Cena heard about it. And then he went and surprised the family and visited them. He came near. You know, here, you know, here's a guy, he's a famous actor. I mean, I'm not into WWE, but he's, he's a famous guy. He's, he probably makes a lot of money. He's a busy guy, a lot of things. He hits pause on his life, and he comes, and he draws near. 
And you can watch the video on YouTube and Twitter, and if you're like me, you'll just be weeping by the end of it. But, you know, it's just this beautiful video because you can imagine the joy and the smiles and all of this because here's a guy who came down and drew near and ate cake with a 19-year-old boy who's needy and compared muscles and gave him his shirt and gave him a hug. You know, this, uh, that story made me think of um, Princess Diana because many of you perhaps know uh, the, the true story that in 1989 when Princess Diana did her first solo trip to the U.S., one of the places that she visited was a hospital in Harlem. She went to this part of New York City that was steeped in violence and uh, gangs and drugs. It was an incredibly dark place. No president had visited. Very few politicians had visited. But Diana goes into this hospital, and then she goes into the wing of the hospital where there are many children that are dying with AIDS, and their parents have already died, and they're there dying. And if you remember anything about the AIDS ep epidemic in the 80s, most people were terrified, and they didn't want to touch people with AIDS. And Diana comes in, and she draws near, and she holds a child. And everyone is just amazed, because here's this great person who shows mercy. Isn't that beautiful? Doesn't that just deeply resonate with you? The Bible says, this is what our God does infinitely greater. This is what he does. And this song, this song comes into even fuller expression and fullness of glory in Jesus Christ. Because John Cena can visit a Ukrainian boy with Down syndrome, but he cannot enter that boy's life. And Diana can hold a child with AIDS, but she cannot become that child. But that's exactly what our God does in and through Jesus. Paul, in Philippians 2, writes of Jesus Christ, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, meaning held onto for his own benefit. He didn't cling to what was rightfully and truly his, Everything that we've said about God so far that we've seen in this psalm was true of God the Son. But he didn't hold on to it. He didn't cling to it. What did he do? He came down. He made himself low. He drew near in mercy. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Think about what the scriptures are telling us. The Son came down and took on flesh, and the whole of Jesus' earthly life was lived in what theologians call the estate of humiliation. He lived in this world with all of its troubles, with all of its sadness, with all of its injustice, he faced persecution and ridicule and misunderstanding, and he was poor, and he was beaten, and he was hated, and he was falsely accused, and he was crucified and died on a cross for us. 
And Jesus Christ came mercifully near and was humiliated. And what does that do? It lifts us up. The same movement in the psalm, by faith in him, we're united to him. And Paul says, we are raised and seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, God might show his immeasurable riches of grace to us in kindness in Christ. Not only forgiven, but raised up to newness of life and adopted as children of God. What do we do with this psalm? The first and most basic application is what I hope we've been doing the last 20 or so minutes, or at least I hope the last five minutes, that when we think about God and as we think about Jesus and we just consider it, we start to get overwhelmed with just the greatness of his love, the unspeakable holy amazement and joy that our hearts are warmed to enjoy and love God. But let me suggest one other way that, that this psalm might shape us. Um, many of you know, Jeff said it earlier, that uh, last week World Relief was here and they were talking about their ministry uh, in the Chicagoland area, and ministry to refugees and displaced people, and we are we're really excited as a church to be partnering and seeking to get involved with World Relief. But let me just, just throw, throw this out there. What is our posture as we go into places of service like that? What is our attitude? While we would probably never state it so arrogantly, there is a way in which we could, I'm not saying that you're going to, but we could relate to problems in our world like refugees and poverty and issues of justice with a posture that functionally says, whether there is a God or not, he sure, sure doesn't seem to care much about these sorts of things. You know, it's a good thing that we're really care capable people with lots of resources, and it's really up to us to get this done. The other posture, the posture from Psalm 119, or from Psalm 113, says, God is at work. I don't always understand it. In fact, I know I don't understand it probably most of the time. But God cares about these things. And he has demonstrated his merciful nearness again and again and again in the pages of Scripture and throughout the story of redemption and ultimately by coming as a person in our world, in Jesus Christ. If Psalm 113 were to shape us, we would move into such places with humility, not with a patronizing posture. We would move into such places of service as people who ourselves are dependent upon God and know that we are needy for God. We would move into those places of service wanting to love people, wanting to relate to people and serve people the way that God has served us. Not at a distance, but drawing near in mercy. This is our God, infinitely great, mercifully near. This is why the Lord is worthy of praise.